Are we good to go? I was just about to, uh, I just started the recording, so we are definitely ready to go. I should have warned you. Anyways, everyone, welcome to the call. This is Craig Valentine. I'm here with John Romanello, and we're just going to give you guys some great information tonight for absolutely no reason at all. I just wanted to talk to John and catch up with him, and I figured, hey, why not invite everyone else on the call as well? So, John, how are you? I'm doing well, man. It's good to talk to you. I haven't spoken to you in a little bit. No, it has been a long time, so uh, looking forward to some great new information from you. So just before we started the recording, John was mentioning he finished up a leg workout today. So, John, why don't you just take us uh, through that for fun? Well, um, <clears throat> legs are uh, they're kind of a, a structured weak point for me. Uh, back when I was bodybuilding, my legs were actually uh, you know, pretty decent, I would say, relative to the rest of my physique. And then when I got more into the fitness modeling, I had to tone down my leg training a lot. Uh, you know, you have to do a lot of stuff in, like, jeans and tight pants and all that. So, um, they, you know, they kind of want you to have smaller legs relative to your upper body. And uh, then when I stopped doing that, it's been kind of a pain in the ass to try and put mass back on. So um, we've got two things working right now. Um, as a lot of people know, I'm actually suffering from some pretty bad elbow tendonitis uh, that Dr. Kareem Samori is treating. And uh, so I can't really do a lot of heavy upper body training, so I figured this would be a really good time to focus on my legs and, and get them back up to par. So Vinny and I actually uh, sat down over the phone, and we actually put together a really good leg specialization program for me, so it was nice to get his insight. So the way I have it structured is I'm training legs three days a week. So um, I'm trying to do every other day just, you know, pretty much, but most of the time it's working out that I'm doing – Monday, Tuesday, Friday, or uh, Monday, Thursday, Friday, so that way I have a nice chunk of rest. So I've got a, a very, very high rep day where I start with uh, 20 rep squats, which is what I did today, and um, then I mostly, you know, it, it's basically two sets of 20 rep squats, so I start with front squats and move into back squats. Um, so for the front squats today, it was actually pretty brutal. I did, uh, I did 275. For, for 20 reps, and uh, I did that onto a low box, which was about an inch and a half below what parallel is for me, so that was a pretty brutal set. The legs actually went okay. It was mostly that I, um, it, you know, just having the bar on my uh, on my in my anterior delts for that long really started to hurt, but, uh, you know, it was, it was overall good, so Vince and I have a real cool kind of uh, leg specialization program that I'm going to be sharing with my blog readers pretty soon, so I'm, I'm kind of writing down everything that I'm doing and keeping a record of it, but... Uh, the goal is to put a full inch on my legs, um, probably in the next uh, in the next eight weeks. So I'd like to be able to do that. That way, uh, I could tie it down for the summer without having to worry about it. Very nice, very interesting. We'll talk about your nutrition plan for that in a bit. Um, elbow tendonitis. What's going on there? Just uh, years of lifting. You know what? Um, I've been trying to work on it for about a year and a half now, and what it seems there is that I actually have sort of a, a little bit of nerve impingement on C7, and um, it just looks like, a, you know, just I got a vertebrae that's a little bit tweaked and leaning on something, and it's basically screwing up everything on the right side of uh, my upper body. So a lot of the stuff where the radial nerve dives in is just kind of swollen, and all that tendon is inflamed. So it's um, on the inside of my elbow, so, uh, you know, it's, um, it's actual medial epicondylitis. So really, really interesting as opposed to, you know, like a lot of time you get uh, like tennis elbow, this would be more categorized as golfer's elbow. So what's going on right now is we've mostly taken care of all of the uh, the stuff in the neck, just you know keep treating that a little bit more consistently. And now just breaking up all of this stuff, all the scar tissue and the soft tissue damage that surrounds that nerve and and you know the tendons in the elbow. So yeah, just I'm not exactly sure what happened. Just years of heavy lifting do tend to abuse you a little bit. Yeah, well, I wish you uh, a speedy recovery now. Any uh, any other cool updates on your own training? And then after you give us some updates on that, maybe tell us about something you've stumbled across with your clients in the last couple of weeks. Um, well, actually, I've just been feeling a lot, uh, shamelessly. I've been doing a lot of body weight stuff recently with myself, mainly because um, I'm just noticing that it really has such a huge effect on my conditioning. It's very, very different because I can move through the exercise so rapidly as opposed to, you know, even when I'm doing complex or kettlebell stuff, um, you know, it's just a completely different effect because you're, you're doing so many closed-chain exercises. So um, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, so I've, I've been doing some of that with my clients, but 
mostly uh, just with myself, a lot of my own training. Um, and also consider that, you know, again, I can't do a lot of heavy pressing movements, so doing push-up variations doesn't hurt the elbows too much. So I've been doing a lot of the bodyweight stuff recently. And um, I'm getting more into some of the more explosive bodyweight stuff, so doing muscle-ups, which for anyone who doesn't know, is the pull-up variation where you go from a dead hang to actually lifting your body completely over the bar and almost into a dip position. And, uh, you know, it's something that Tony Horton does a lot of, and they do a lot with CrossFit and stuff. So uh, my goal is to be able to do 20 of those consecutively. I'm working on that. You don't have any problem with the elbow when you do the muscle-up? No, believe it or not. It's really um, anytime I'm using a lot of weight for, like, a straight press or anytime I'm doing something where it's a more of an extension exercise, particularly if the, the humerus is, you know, in line with the body. So if I'm doing, like, a straight tricep press-down or an overhead extension, it hurts a lot. But uh, for whatever reason, when the humerus is perpendicular to the torso when I'm doing, like, a skull crusher or something of that nature, it really doesn't bother me as much. I'm not sure why. What about uh, pulling exercises? Does any of those bother No, not really. Um, not really. I've managed to kind of, uh, you know, I'll angle – angle the humerus at around 45 degrees, and sometimes it will affect me uh, as I get very, very close to failure, and my triceps start kicking in more to assist with the pulling on, let's say, a close grip pull-up, but when I'm doing wide grip pull-ups, no pain at all, and when I'm doing most row variations, I don't have uh, any problems there either. Okay, cool. Well, that, that kind of leads us into a, a question from a Facebook reader, Sash. Savenko, he asked for your opinion on body weight only training for fat loss. That's great. I mean, you know, we don't have to look any further than you to see that it is particularly effective. Um, I like it a lot, particularly because you could do it outside. And, you know, I find very few things more motivating than, you know, kind of training in a park. And body weight stuff for fat loss is particularly good because, you know, you can just throw a lot of cool stuff in there. Um, you know, if you're down at a playground or a park and you have access to a pull-up bar, you know, you can go from pull-ups to dips to bodyweight squats or one-legged squats, and then immediately after you finish that circuit, just, you know, head into a dead sprint. And, you know, uh, mixing in those metabolic-type movements with uh, sprinting and, and anaerobic training, you know, mixed with aerobic training, you know, it just works so many different energy systems that you're going to burn fat, you know, pretty much faster than anything else. It's great. Cool. And so uh, so with the other stuff that you're stealing and, and maybe using with some of your clients, what uh, what's really getting great feedback from the kids these days? Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm really working on with my clients now is, um, you know, getting back to a lot of the athletic stuff that I used to do with my clients. I've, uh, you know, just started really kind of digging into my closet and pulling out all the training tools that I've had over the years. So, uh, I'm doing a lot of agility ladder stuff, and I'm actually training a couple of people for um, some combines that they're doing. So we're doing a lot of lateral movements and shuttle runs and things like that. So, you know, just because I, I you know, you kind of get in that mindset where you sort of a lot of your day kind of goes however the first session went. So I'm doing that with some of my other fat loss clients, and they're really enjoying the challenge there. So uh, that, that's going pretty well. All right, that's and, pretty cool. Um, yeah, I've been stealing a lot of that from DeFranco. I've been kind of following his blog lately and uh, and looking at uh, his Facebook page. And, you know, they do so many cool things with their athletes there that it's hard not to want to train professional athletes all the time. So even though a lot of my clients are, you know, just your regular people, it's it's cool to see that within, you know, three weeks' time, they can increase their 40-yard dash time or, or, you know, like be able to do better on agility drills and lose fat and still meet their goals. And they love it. They really – I'm just getting such great feedback. Okay, very good. All right, so let's go back to um, to final phase fat loss and talk about, you know, some of the feedback you've got. You know, what are the common questions that people have been sending in? You know, is there exercise substitutions that people have been have been needing, anything like that? Uh, well, a lot of the things that people really want are body weight versions of all the workouts. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've done is I've created a lot of combination stuff. So, uh, I took a lot of the density workouts and I made some body weight workouts out of those and also did some with uh, with Kareem stuff. So I think the hardest part is, as with anything in body weight training, is finding stuff to, to simulate rowing or, or pull-up or pull-down exercises. <clears throat> so there's 
that. And then other than that, people just seem to really have a hard time understanding. And this is the question I get most. You know, they say, you know, John, I've always been told my whole life that I shouldn't train the same muscle back-to-back multiple days in a row. But in Final Phase Fat Loss, I have people doing, you know, pretty much two days on, one day off. And um, and most of the exercises, you know, have a lot of carryover. So in most circuits, you have one variation of a lunge, one variation of a squat. So people are really having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that you can do these workouts back-to-back, and it's not going to impede your recovery. So I just kind of want to address that for your readers as well. And it's important to note that a lot of it has to do with your overall volume. A lot of your recovery is pretty much going to be structured not only on your nutrition, but also how hard you actually push. So when you look at, you know, you shouldn't train two muscles in a row, that recommendation comes down to us from Arnold and from the bodybuilders in the Golden Age. And what they pretty much did was, you know, they'd have chest day and they would train bodybuilder style and they would do, you know, four sets of bench press, four sets of incline, four sets of cable curls, and they'd finish out push-ups. So, you know, they're doing 12, 15, 20 sets for a single body part or a single muscle group. And in final phase fat loss, you know, maybe you'll have 25 to 30 total sets spread across your entire body. So no one single muscle group is getting enough volume or incurring enough microtrauma to necessitate a full 24 or 48-hour rest period. Now, of course, you know, working your entire body, of course, is, is draining, and you're going to have some central nervous fatigue and, and need to take two days off after two days on. But... um you know, I just, it's, it's really interesting that some of these old rumors really have a hard time dying. You know, these recommendations kind of get graven in stone, and they're hard to kind of shake people out of. Well, how sore would you say someone can't be if they, if they you know, to train a muscle group back-to-back? Like, you know, if there's a little bit of soreness, can they do it? If there's a lot of soreness, shouldn't they do it? How, how's that going to work? Um, I, I like to categorize people into, like, three levels of soreness. You know, level one is just like if you try to use that muscle, if you, you know, uh, you know, you just like if you trained your legs and you stand up and you've been sitting for a while, you'll notice that they're sore. You're kind of a little funky walking down the steps. You know, you notice it. That's level one. Level two soreness is when you kind of pretty much are aware of it any time you move and, you know, maybe that muscle is actually pretty sore to the touch. That's level two soreness, so I would say that one you can, if you're an advanced trainee and um, you don't mind spending, you know, uh, 20 to 15, uh, 15 to 20 minutes warming up, you could definitely train through that. And then there's level three soreness, which is when you wake up in the morning and every part of your body just hurts and, you you know, you wake up cursing my name or Craig Valentine's name or Vince's name. You know, if, like, if you train shoulders and now you, like, legitimately can't lift your arms above your head, then you don't, you should not be working out that day. You know, give it some time to recover. In which case, also, you need to consider that you probably overreached a little bit. You know, so that's level three soreness. If it's really inhibitive to your, your regular everyday lifestyle, then, you know, don't, don't train that day. So there's a couple of different levels. So if it's just, you know, kind of you notice it, then at that point, you know, you're fine. Very cool. Very good. So Rose... Rosa Sabatino, Rosa Sabatino, say that better. She asks on Facebook, what happens once you have completed the six-week program of final phase fat loss? Well, that depends on where you are relative to your goal. If you still want to lose more fat, I recommend taking a full week off of training and just, uh, you know, kind of using some active recovery. You know, be active, run around with your kids or, you know, you know, run outside, you know, just kind of enjoy being out of the gym for a little while. And then after that week, just repeat the program for six weeks. And I'd say you could do that up to three times in a row. So six weeks on, one week off, six weeks on, and then, you know, so on. Um, If you're kind of happy where you are now and you're not trying to get any leaner, what I always recommend people do is transition into a strength-based program so maybe something uh, like Joel's, uh, I think it was his first article, Ripped, Rugged, and Dense at Teen Nation, talked about the classic 5 by 5 method, which really necessitates that you lift a lot of weight. And doing that increases neurogenic and myogenic tone. It gets a lot of type 2 B fibers uh, popping. And I talked a lot about this on my blog actually today, and um, that's what I would suggest. So, it, you know, what you don't want to do 
nutrients, and you might put on some fat if you go right from eating, you know, 500 calories below maintenance every day to eating 1,000 calories above your likely to, and also that could screw with your endocrine system a bit. So I always recommend people take four weeks of just training strictly for strength and still eating relatively low calories to kind of let their fat set point change and then uh, go from there. Okay, cool. Very helpful. Um, actually, that brings me into uh, another question. You were going to talk about things that people need to start doing, like foam rolling, ART, keeping records and stuff like that. Now, let's talk about that, but then also talk about what your ideal recovery slash deload week is, because you talked about that week off. So why don't you walk yeah. us through that as well? Okay, so just a couple of things that people should quickly start doing. Um, there's a couple of different tiers. So ART, for anyone who doesn't know, is active release therapy, and you can check it out at active-release.com, I believe. And it's basically a really aggressive sports type of massage. It's kind of a mixture of massage and chiropractor where they go in and um, break up some of the soft tissue scarring and soft tissue damage and, and work around your trigger points that's been going on. And, um, you know, you should. I, I recommend that people have that done once a month. And, you know, it, it is an expense. I mean, if, you, if your insurance doesn't cover it and, um, you know, you're going to a pretty decent guy, yeah, you know, it can cost you, you know, maybe $130 over the course of the month if you're just doing it once a month. And I know that's pricey, so I do recommend finding someone that's covered by your insurance guy. But, you know, what's really interesting is the people that need it most, like the athletes and those guys, um, you know, they don't want to do it because they don't want to spend money on it, but then they'll go drop $70 on a pump product. So you really should, you know, kind of prioritize uh, the things that are, going to get you results, and, and honestly, being um, being able to function over the long haul, which is really what active release and, and all these recovery, like recuperative recuperative methods do, um, that's going to be super important, and it's going to, you know, help you get better results in the long term. So that's kind of the tier one. That's, you know, again, it's a little bit more expensive. Going down from there, you know, just seeing a regular massage therapist to uh, you know, work through some stuff, and maybe seeing a chiropractor as well could work. Uh, there's also grafting therapy, which is kind of an offshoot from ART, and uh, I think it's um, graftingtechnique.com, and what they do is they use these small metal tools and run them over your muscle fibers, and over time, that'll kind of get things back in alignment, you know, rather than, if you think of... Um, really hard to think of an analogy, but if you think about the way your muscle fibers are lined up in a muscle, a bunch of parallel lines, um, you know, running in, in whatever direction they happen to run into that muscle, and then you, you know, smush your hand over that, and, you know, then they kind of get mashed up and tangled up with another, then, uh, you know, you really want to just, what Grafton does, it kind of smooths them out and, and restores some proper blood flow and function to that muscle. And then a step down from there would be picking up a foam roller. And a foam roller you can get for anywhere between $10 and $30, depending on the size. And, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of great websites that have talked about foam rolling, and I should probably do it on my blog. But, uh, you know, one of the best guys in the industry, Eric Cressy, has a whole series of foam rolling exercises. And really what you do is you just go over your trigger points and stuff and, and places where soft tissue damage tends to be the most. And what that does, again, is restores blood flow and allows you to recover a little bit faster. Keep in mind, the key to recovery is blood. Blood is the, <clears throat> the highway, you know, it's the, the pathway that gets all of your nutrients to, to your damaged muscles. And if you have impeded blood flow, then you're going to have impeded recovery. So helping with uh, foam rolling really helps with, you know, restoring proper blood flow to each muscle. So, you know, my ideal deload week would probably consist of foam rolling every day, going for, you know, maybe a two-mile jog outside just for fun, you know, maybe with my dog, you know, probably twice that week, and then doing, you know, some body weight exercise outside at the park once per week. And then other than that, I really, really like to do nothing structured. You know, my deload weeks, um, a lot of people talk about, you know, using light weights and just building up, um, you know, the um, the movement patterns and everything. So if you're going to, like, go back into bench pressing after that week, maybe, you know, just work on 135 and getting your form down. 
you know, I just, you know, a lot of a lot of the better guys in the industry are talking about that, and they've got a lot of good points. But you know, I really believe in the deconditioning effect and really allowing people to stay out of the gym for a full week and just kind of like be active elsewhere. And uh, you know, so just go do other things you enjoy. For me, in the summer, it's surfing you know, a little bit more, and then, then going to the gym, and, you know, in the winter, a lot of people go snowboarding and stuff like that, so, you know, it should just really be trying to get some cardio in, trying to, you know, get your body to move through space with some bodyweight exercises like lunges and pull-ups, and then other than that, just, you know, do, do some fun stuff, you know, get out of the gym. Very good, very good, appreciate that. Uh, one other thing you want to mention is keeping records, did you get a chance to talk on that? I did, yeah, that's, you know, we, we provide a lot of great programs for people, and, um, you know, but we don't tell people what weight to lift, so it's really important that people get a training journal, or, you know, in Final Phase Fat Loss, I provide all sorts of training records, and, you know, just kind of figure out what weight you think you should be lifting, and then write down how many reps you actually did with that weight, or what weight you wound up using. If you don't have a record of how much weight you're lifting, and how many reps and everything, you can't really progress. You know, you'll see your body change, but if you really are, are trying to take your fitness seriously, then you should have a way to quantify your progress, and it should be something other than the mirror and other than the scale. And using weights to kind of, you know, like, and make notes. You know, I write down how I feel at the beginning of every workout right before I start. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, if I'm able to gauge my condition, I'll kind of be able to predict what kind of workout I'm going to have. And if I'm feeling really good and really strong and I have a crappy workout, then I know that it's not because I wasn't motivated. It's because there's something physiologically going on. Maybe I need another recovery day. Maybe, you know, I should have structured things differently. Maybe I'm overreaching in terms of the weight. So if you don't really know how much you should be lifting based on how much you've lifted previously and how much success you've had with that, then you have really no way to, to kind of judge whether or not you've had a successful workout. Cool. So people yeah. really need to start keeping records, yeah. Yeah, and what do you think about you know, focusing on trying to beat a record, you know, when you go into the gym, trying to improve on the past record. Well, I know, it's, you know, it's very motivating, particularly for guys, you know, dudes are just into numbers and, uh, you know, trying to trying to get a PR in the bench press or the deadlift. Um, you know, I don't think you should be trying to hit a PR every week. I mean, you should be trying to lift more weight every workout than you have previously within reason. Um, you know, the, the stronger you get, the better results you're going to get. The, you know, the stronger you are, the faster you'll build muscle, and the stronger you are, the faster you'll lose fat. There's just no downside to being strong. Um, the great thing about, you know, PRs and everything is they give you a sense of accomplishment. You know, if you spend, you know, three months trying to bring up your deadlift and you're able to add 60 pounds to it, then, you know, especially if you're going to enter competition, that's obviously very important. But even if you're not, then you know, you're probably going to achieve a lot of other things without even realizing it. You know, you're, if you're focusing on the deadlift, your posture might be increased because now you've got more hamstring and glute strength. You're probably going to lose fat because you're pulling a crap load of weight. And, you know, on top of which, you're probably going to see some muscular gains in your shoulders, your traps, your arms, just from holding the weight on the bar. So, you know, it's, it's really cool. It's motivating. And, you know, even though you're focusing on that 60-pound gain, you're going to notice all these other things as well, which is cool. Very good stuff. Well, let's move into some some more fat loss stuff here. Um, I wanted to ask you about stubborn body fat, um, any gender differences there are between men and women when it comes to stubborn body fat. And maybe, I know you talked about this in the final phase, obviously, but if you can recap what some of the best stuff is for final for uh, stubborn losing stubborn fat. Sure. Um, so stubborn fat is normally what you notice, like when you've lost the first 30 pounds and you have like five more pounds to go or 10 more. Um, and it's really where you're going to store them in, you know, the last bit of your fat. So if you're down to 7% body fat and you're me and, you know, maybe you've got, um, you know, like I'll just use myself in this, as an example and I'll make the math easy. If I'm 200 pounds at, you know, 5% body fat, then I've only got, you know, what, 10 pounds of fat on my body and legitimately four of it will be in my love handles and lower back. So if you think about that, that's 40% of my total subcutaneous fat in one area, you know, surrounding my waist. And that just doesn't happen by accident. So the reason for that is because um, uh, I have some insulin resistance. So you're going to notice that where you're storing your fat towards the end of your dieting is really going to be 
um, dictated by what your hormonal system looks like. So uh, to answer the second part of your question, with women, we're primarily going to see it in the hips and the thighs and, and the buttocks, and a lot of that is it's just estrogen-related fat storage. And um, with men, uh, primarily we're seeing it um, more, more often than not in the belly, which is a cortisol issue, and also in the love handles and lower back, um, which, as I mentioned, is an insulin issue. So if you have insulin issues, the easiest thing to do is drop carbs. Uh, Joel Marion, actually, he has a real good system. You know, he calls it priming week where, um, you know, you just cut out carbs almost completely for two weeks. And if you go down to, you know, 20 or 30 grams a day, then you just kind of restart insulin sensitivity. Other things you could do for that include um, including cinnamon into your diet, particularly with your carb meals. Uh, a lot of the old school body, or I wouldn't say the old school bodies, the new school bodybuilders, they do a lot of stuff with apple cider vinegar before carb meals, and that really shows to, uh, you know, work with insulin management and um, and carb shuttling, which is really cool. So, you know, a shot of apple cider vinegar is something that I do, you know, as I'm getting to, you know, 6% and below. Um, I do that for any meal with carbs. You can even do it for your post-workout shake. And then after that, it's all about trying to, work with your hormonal system and your endocrine system rather than against it. So one of the things that final phase fat loss is founded on is utilizing different workout styles that will elicit the release of certain hormones that offset other hormones. So if you have a problem with insulin, then you want to try and increase IGF-1. And one of the ways to do that is use a lot of exercises that move your body through space a lot. So stuff like lunges and step-ups, which I call dynamic training, are going to help you release a lot more IGF-1 and going to offset some of the insulin-related fat storage. Uh, going back to women, one of the things that we notice is, um, you know, again, the estrogen-related fat. So what you want to do there is try and do a lot of density-based training and doing a lot of training in a short period of time, uh, which is really the purpose of density training, is going to help you release a little bit more testosterone, which will help uh, the estrogen-related fat storage. Now, I will qualify that by saying that there are conflicting studies on that one, and obviously I kind of handpick the ones that support my point, uh, and I don't feel bad about that because I feel like that's what most researchers and authors do. So I'll just say that even though I have, you know, conflicting research backing that particular claim, uh, we have seen, you know, phenomenal results with it. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of willing to stand by the results and, and kind of, uh, you know, not, not so much worry about the research there. Um, and then, you know, for cortisol issues, main thing you can try to do is increase the amount of growth hormone circulating in your body, which offsets, which kind of lowers cortisol levels. And to do that, we just produce a lot of lactic acid. And when you do that, uh, there's kind of a concurrent increase in the amount of growth hormone your body produces and releases, which will lower the cortisol levels. And that's another one of the styles in final phase fat loss. So a lot of it, again, the stubborn fat is not necessarily um, that you're doing something wrong. It's that you're just missing one thing that you could be doing more right or more correctly. And in that particular case, you know, yeah, there's all sorts of dietary tricks and tactics you could use, but, you know, as long as you're doing that, you may as well also structure your training to be a little bit more efficacious with regard to that particular issue. Okay, great. And then, you know, when someone who has been really overweight and they've lost a lot of weight, and they're left with all that extra skin. Is Have you ever come up with a, a solution to overcome that? Unfortunately not. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've had some clients who during the course of training with me, um, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, he's, uh, he's maybe my height, so he's 5'8", and he was up at like 260. And then um, I think we at, at his lowest point, we got him to 158 before he started packing on mass, that's, you know, that's 92 pounds. Like, there's just going to be a lot of loose skin. And unfortunately, there's not much we can do, you know, and most of the time you're really left with the option of, uh, of surgery. You know, you can try and mitigate it by filling out some of it with muscle, but, you know, you're not, you're not going to gain 90 pounds of muscle in most cases. Uh, you know, so unfortunately there's not a lot we could do, um, you know, in which case uh, – you know, surgery is really the only option. Um, one of the cool things I actually found out about recently is uh, you can, um, if you are someone who's lost a lot of fat and you're thinking about getting the skin removal surgery, 
Uh, one of the interesting things that they do now is you can actually donate your skin, um, and they use it for grafts on, like, burn victims and stuff, which I thought was uh, was a really cool thing. That's really interesting. Now, I, I suppose yeah. you, you probably also see different, you know, responses between individuals. Is, have you ever been able to, like, categorize and say, hey, you know what, this person probably will have more loose skin than this person? Anything that comes to mind? Um, it's really the longer a person has been overweight, then the more likely they are to have a lot of loose skin. Um, but there's, there, other than that, there wouldn't really be too many, like, telling characteristics. Um, you know, I've, I've had, you know, people who have, you know, only recently, you know, they gain, like, the freshman 40, and then, you know, we'll work together and we'll drop, um, you know, maybe 30 of it in, in a, a given summer over the course of the time that, you know, this is obviously, I'm, I'm mostly thinking of students here, but, you know, they have no loose skin issues. So really, um, the length of time you've been fat and, um, or overweight, I should say, and, uh, and your, your total age, the older you get, the less elasticity in the skin you have. And a lot of times, those things are obviously, uh, you know, not mutually exclusive. So generally speaking, if you are 60 years old and you've been overweight for 30 years, then you are just going to have loose skin. And, you know, obviously the, the heavier you are, the bigger you are in terms of the total fat you have, the more likely you are to have that. And then what about, how, what kind of information do you have with um, moms who have been, you know, obviously pregnant? Is, is that kind of the same sort of thing? Is, is nine months going to be so long that it's going to cause problems? Or if you found that yeah. some moms bounce back better? Now, you know, most of the time it's like if um, you'll, you're going to get stretch marks. If you're a very thin woman and you have a very big pregnancy, um, you are going to get stretch marks, but you shouldn't have too much in the way of loose skin. Um, but then again, look, look at all the issues we're touching on there. Now, most women, uh, the average age for women to have babies has gone up in New York. Um, so I think the, the average age now is 29, whereas it used to be like 26. But 29 is still very, very young. So, you know, those women are bouncing back pretty quickly. Um, what we do see a lot, though, and one of the things I've run into is people who were overweight and then got pregnant and then wanted to get, quote, unquote, back in shape, even though they were never really in shape to begin with. And now, you know, let's say, you know, I start training them and they're in way better shape than they were before they were pregnant. Those people are going to be a little bit more likely to have uh, the loose skin issues. But usually nine months. If you are not carrying around tremendous amounts of fat prior to your pregnancy, you're not really going to see that much in the way of um, of loose skin. You're probably going to see more in the way of stretch marks. Uh, and the things they can do to mitigate that are, you know, there's a lot of the creams out there, the vitamin E creams and stuff that actually, um, you know, the, the, the more moist your skin is, the more elastic it can kind of be without, uh, you know, getting the stretch marks and stuff. So people have been seeing some pretty decent results with that, but, I'd have a hard time qualifying as to whether it was the cream or whether that person just dealt with, you know, skin elasticity a little bit better. Okay, that's cool. Um, next question, while we're sticking on the bit of the gender thing, have you noticed that certain types of exercises work better for men or women when it comes to losing fat or maybe even certain types of training? Like you mentioned, the, the density training works really well for the women um, for stubborn fat loss. Anything else that you can say? It's just everyone loves to think that men and women are so different. So let's uh, let's amuse uh, them with an answer. Um, I would say that there's a very roundabout way to answer your question with a yes, but mostly what you're going to see is that those types of training are more effective for people who have those hormone-related fat storage issues and. You know, the majority of the people with the fat storage issues regarding estrogen happen to be women, so that type of training might prove to be more effective for women based on that, but I don't think that it's more effective for women, you know, based on anything other than that's where they store fat. You know, men and women, you know, for the most part can train pretty similarly. Um, uh, and actually, you know, we, we do have guys making incredible progress using just density training for fat loss and high stability, so... Um, yeah, there's, there's not like a tremendous difference. Uh, you know, women seem to have a higher threshold for lactic acid, so uh, in the initial stages they do a little bit better, and then guys kind of catch up, and 
right, there's no right answer. There's no boys are better than girls or anything like that. Uh, it's just, you know, people as individuals will react to certain things a little bit better than others and vice versa. So a lot of it just happens to be trying to figure out what works for your client in that moment for their goal. Okay, very good. And now another question you wanted to uh, cover here was the biggest mistakes that advanced trainees are making. Yeah. Um, so you, you're going to have two types of people. You're going to have guys who are really, really habitual, and they kind of, you know, make really, really good progress with one program, and then they kind of fall in love with it, and it's always their, like, mainstay. And they don't vary things enough. So one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is that they're still using whatever crazy bodybuilding routine or whatever you know, that, that they've been using since they're 20, and they're not. They're, they wonder why they're not making progress. And um, uh, it's it's really interesting. And, and actually, I happen to know a guy like this. He's one of my mentors. Actually, uh, when I first started getting involved in fitness, and you know, back in the 70s, he made a tremendous amount of progress on high-intensity training. And, you know, to this day, whenever he kind of, like, doesn't have a routine, he just falls back on that, you know, the one-set-to-failure protocol. I don't think there's anything wrong with that protocol in general, but, you know, it's probably better that he structures his training going forward, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, kind of just like not having anything in place for after he ends whatever new routine he's on, that he has something a little bit more structured, you know, prior to getting there. So that way when he's ready to go, you know, he uh, doesn't need to just like fall immediately back on there. So that's one thing. So I think that people, you know, rather than just kind of staying on one program their whole life, need to just have things in place to address whatever concerns that they have. Uh, the other type of person is, you know, the program hopper, and this is the person who's on my mailing list, and he's on your mailing list, and he's on Vince's, and he gets great information from all of us, and, you know, like, one week, you know, Vince tells him, like, oh, this is a great new program for building muscle, you should check it out, and he's doing it, he's like, oh, this is awesome, I'm going to make some progress here, and then, you know, he doesn't really see much, because he's only been on it for, like, two weeks, and then, you know, he jumps over to a fat loss program by you or me, and then, you know, he jumps onto something else by Jay Ferrugia, and these program hoppers are on, like, something for, like, two weeks at most. You know, and, and um, you know, I, I get I get a couple of people emailing me, like, oh, Final Face Fat Loss didn't work for me. I've been on it for a while now. And I was like, dude, it's been out for, like, two weeks. You know, like, how much time did you really give it? Um, so you see, you know, a lot of people really just, like, not doing the right things in terms of, um, you know, in terms of, like, giving something a full chance. Like, you know, I recommend People stay on a program for six to eight weeks at the minimum. And if it's a muscle-gaining program, you should be on it for 12 weeks. So, you know, you have the guys who stay on programs for too long and then the guys who don't stay on programs long enough to really give it a shot. And both of these guys aren't making optimal progress. And, you know, you see that even with the advanced guys. And then the other thing is, you know, guys who are kind of designing their own programs and just going in the gym and they have chest day or back day or whatever else, you know, way, 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 way too much pressing and not enough pulling, you know, and there's nothing better than creating an issue and creating a situation for where you're really just going to screw your shoulders up for getting things kind of, uh, you know, internally rotated because you've got these rounded shoulders from doing, you know, 8,000 sets of bench press a week and doing five sets of pull-ups in rows. You know, like generally speaking, if I have a brand new person fresh out of the box who's never done any training before, I'll probably do, you know, maybe eight sets of pressing for every ten sets of pulling. So, you know, it's a fairly, you know, it's a 45 ratio. It's really, you know, it's really, really close. For most guys who have been training a couple of years and who I know for a fact have been screwing things up for a while, I'll have two sets of pulling for every one set of pressing. So, you know, it's for every time you do a set of bench press, you're doing two sets of rows to try and correct years and years and years of uh, mirror muscle training, as I would call it. You see that a lot, you know, especially the advanced trainees. These guys have been training for a while. The longer they've been training, the more likely they are to have that. Yeah, and now 
you just want to clarify that you know rowing is different than doing pull downs, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, this um, you're not really going to see as much in the way of scapular retraction and anything where you're doing a vertical pulling exercise. Uh, just because the position of the humerus relative to the torso doesn't allow for it. So rowing exercises are, you know, if I had to choose one over the other from a health perspective, I would definitely say that people need to row more. And, um, you know, I, I've never seen anyone screw themselves up by doing too many pull-ups, but I would just say that if you're only, if you're going to choose one over the other, horizontal pulling is going to be much better from a shoulder health perspective than, uh, than vertical pulling. All right, very good. Well, let's move into some nutrition stuff here. And we have a question from Kyler Cavers on Facebook who asks, what are some of the best foods to eat prior to heading to the gym for a workout? And how many carbs should someone consume and how long beforehand? Okay. Um, generally, I recommend that, you know, like right before the gym or, or um, you know, in the half hour leading up to that, you know, people just start drinking their, their workout shake. You know, just start taking a couple of sips of it so you got some fast-digesting carbs in there, you're refilling your glycogen stores, and you got some fast-digesting protein already kind of breaking down in your system. So that way, by the time you get to the gym and start creating some microtrauma, you're, um, you're not really going to be uh, draining your resources too much. You're kind of working with what's there. Uh, and that works really, really well for, um, you know, muscle-building stuff. So... Um, and then, you know, like, throughout, I normally recommend that you have two servings of your workout shake and you start drinking one before your workout, finish it during your workout, and then at the end of it, you have the other serving. Um, and that's really what I do. Now, uh, that's something that's worked really, really well for me and my clients. It works particularly well for people who wake up first thing in the morning and start training. Just get up, start drinking that shake. You know, a lot of people can't handle food early in the morning. Their stomachs are kind of iffy, so eating solid food and then going to the gym is an issue. And uh, then there are also people like me. If I actually have solid food within three hours of my workout, I'm more likely than I already am to throw up. Uh, my stomach is just really sensitive to intense exercise. So um, for the people who don't have that issue, then I would say uh, about two hours before your workout, have a nice, like a decent, um, you know, mid-protein, mid-carb meal. So in that particular instance, I would say, you know, maybe uh, I would in, in the area of 20 grams of protein, 20 grams of carbohydrates if you're a 200-pound guy, and, uh, you know, a little less if you're lighter, a little more if you're heavier. And also it'll be, you know, all of this is completely dependent on your goal. That's, that's really important. So, like, all, everything that I'm recommending now uh, I should have mentioned earlier, is really if your main goal is to try to put on some muscle. If you're looking to lose fat, everything changes. So if you're looking to lose fat, I mean, really, I recommend about an hour before the gym, have a whey-only shake, just protein, just whey protein, and um, so you're less likely to incur any, any catabolic activity there. And then immediately after, have whatever, you know, meal is in line with your fat loss diet. Um, but I, I'm not a big fan of... of you know, carving up right before you hit the gym. I actually find that it impedes performance quite a bit. So, you know, having a tremendous amount of carbohydrates and protein before the gym is really not likely to help. Okay, and then why don't you tell us about your post-workout nutrition and, again, maybe go over that, uh, what you were talking about before. Sure. Um, well, you know, this is one of the things that's really happening in the industry now, and I'm really kind of excited to be a part of it. You know, in the beginning, we had post-workout nutrition, and you'd finish a workout, and people would just say, okay, drink this shake, and, you know, that was that, and um, then you kind of started, people started talking about pre-workout nutrition, which is like, oh, you should have this beforehand and then something different afterwards, and then people started having peri-workout nutrition, which is, you know, stuff that you drink or, or eat during your workout, um, and now, so we have those three things, pre, peri, and post, and we're you know, because apparently we love peas, we're putting them all under para-workout nutrition, P-A-R-A, um, and that's all of the nutrition immediately surrounding your workout. So as I described, I would go, you know, uh, one serving of your of your workout beverage just, you know, prior and during the early part of training and then one afterwards. And then really, really important if you're in a muscle gain phase, I recommend that about 
45 minutes after finishing your post-workout shake, you have a high-carb meal with, um, you know, about one gram of carbohydrate per pound of lean body mass. So, you know, in my case, that's 180 grams of carbs. And, um, you know, then I'll have about half as much protein. So, uh, you know, just 90 grams of protein, which for me is, like, mostly coming from about two scoops of whey protein and then a couple of chicken breasts. Um, but I, it should be mentioned that that's pretty much it for my carbs for the day. You know, I'll have something light at breakfast, then I'll have all of my workout nutrition, then I'll have my post-workout meal, and then that's it. No more carbs for the day for me, really. So, you know, over the course of that day, I might be getting 400 grams of carbs, but it's all coming immediately surrounding my workout. And by doing that, by structuring my nutrient timing that way, I'm a lot more likely to minimize my fat gain, even though I'm eating, you know, in a caloric surplus while I'm gaining mass. And, um... You know, that might seem a little high in protein in one sitting for uh, for most people. I haven't noticed an issue. The the worst that you're going to get from eating that much protein all at once is a little bit extra gluconeogenesis, which is when protein kind of breaks down and converts into carbohydrate or glucose anyway, which is not really an issue. We don't have to worry about it in this, uh, this instance because we're not in a fat loss phase. Um, and then, you know, after that, go back to your regularly scheduled eating programming. But, you know, that, that post-workout window – is um, it's kind of tricky. You know, some people say it's very long. Some people say it's very short. You know, I'm just, uh, I, I'm a results guy. I'm not really, you know, that, that focused on trying to define the absolutes of how long um, you're, you know, you have to, to eat. I just, about 45 minutes out, you should have a big, big meal, and that should usually be one of your biggest meals of the day. Your two biggest meals of the day should be the meal immediately post-workout and also breakfast. And, you know, in that way, you're likely to gain more muscle and lose more fat or minimize fat gain in this instance. Okay, next question is from Tim Foy. He says, let's say he's on a 2,000-calorie-per-day diet. Does it really matter how many meals that's broken up into? Uh, um, yes. Now, if you're having all 2,000 in one meal, that's not good. Um, you're going to run into some issues there. Um, not only digestively, but also in terms of your progress. Once you get past, like, four meals, um, I'm going to say it probably doesn't really make that much of a difference. I think people like the old standby of six meals because that's just kind of what we were taught when we were little baby bodybuilders. And, you know, it's kind of what Bill Phillips recommended in Body for Life and kind of what everyone goes with. Um, I would say four meals is probably the minimum, and if you're getting upwards, you know, if you're one of those guys who is trying to eat, um, you know, maybe every 90 minutes, then, you're, you know, you might be going just like a tiny bit overboard. And, um, you know, I, I would say four to six meals is fine, but uh, I would say anything less than that you're most likely going to impede the amount of nutrients that you could break down and absorb in a given time frame. If you're eating 2,000 calories and um, it's divided into, you know, into three meals, let's say, then uh, if my mental math is correct, it's like 666.6 repeating uh, calories per meal, which is a lot to eat, particularly, you know, if you're on a 2,000-calorie diet, I'm going to assume for a guy that's either a fat loss or a maintenance diet, you're not really going to lose that much fat, like shoving your face with 600 calories, right, you know, before or after you exercise. It's just a little bit high. Whereas, you know, keeping your metabolic rate elevated by eating more frequently um, is probably a little bit better. So, you know, if you're having four meals and one of them is your post-workout nutrition, that's a lot more manageable, I would say. Um, you know, once you get past that, uh probably doesn't doesn't uh, change that much. And actually, there is also some new evidence emerging, some new studies. I'll see if I could find them uh, on, on PubMed that are showing that less frequent dosages of amino acids are actually a little bit better for muscle sparing. So it might be the case that doing four meals is actually ideal for gaining muscle and that, you know, doing something a little bit more frequent like, um, you know, six meals or so might be better for fat loss from a metabolic perspective. All right, I'm going to switch it up here. Uh, Jose Carrillo wants to know if carb cycling benefits fat loss. Yeah, of course. Yeah, carb cycling has been around forever, and people, um, 
you know, getting great results from it. So, um, you know, the traditional carb cycling approach is, I think it's like two days of low carb, one day of moderate carb, one day of high carb. And what it does is it just, you know, keeps your body from adapting to a certain amount of carbohydrate intake, particularly uh, that high-carb day elevates leptin levels. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of benefit to it. Uh, Jason Hunter has the carb rotation diet, which is very, very similar. Uh, Joel Marion takes it a step further with the Cheat Your Way Thin diet, which is, like, very, very low-carb during the week. And then, uh, you know, that, that high-fat, high-carb, high-calorie day with the cheat day. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very beneficial. It's just, you know, for, it's a lot of work. You know, you gotta you gotta figure out you know, you gotta plan it out in advance and then if you're like me, you're gonna, you know, figure out how many carbs you're eating Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday before you go into the cycle again. And then, you know, my heart my high carb day is probably gonna be my leg workout. If I'm kind of doing what I'm doing right now and training legs three or four times a week, then you know, how do I work that? So uh, you know, carb cycling works, but it it requires you to put a lot more thought into your diet and your nutrition plan and to have things set up ahead of time. Um, telling someone that they need to eat low carbs and, you know, try to have less than 100 grams of carbs per day and break that down into, you know, that's like four pieces of bread, whatever it is, you know, whatever examples you give them, most people could wrap their head around that and kind of be like, all right, I can do this. When you tell people, well, today you could have 200 grams, tomorrow 150 grams, and the day after that 100 grams, and then 200 grams, and then 300 like, you really have to be on top of that. It's not going to uh, – it's definitely going to work for the majority of people, but those people have to be willing to dedicate a little, a little bit more time into planning. And I find that's where a lot of people kind of screw things up. So it's definitely an effective method. You just really have to, you know, actually work the method. Very good. Thank you. Uh, right. Uh, that actually kind of leads into the next question around the cheat meal. Susie Harris wants to know if it's better to eat something high in sugar or something high in salt. She worries which one is going to stick longer to your body or be harder to work off. I'm thinking this kind of really isn't a – she's got kind of the wrong perspective of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if it's a cheat meal, if it's a true cheat meal <sighs> – You're not going to get something that's one or the other, really, are you? Yeah, I mean, you're, you know – Okay, you're either going to order, you know, if you're looking at something that's salty, it's almost impossible to get something salty that isn't also going to be carby um, or sugary. You know, like, you know, if you're going to eat nachos and stuff like that, you know, it's, it's very salty. Um, if you're, you know, eating wings and stuff that's salty, it's, uh, it's also got a lot of sugar from the, you know, from everything. Um, I would say the... You know, you can certainly get something that's sugary without being salty if you're getting, you know, cake <laughs> or ice cream. Um, but if you're doing a true cheat meal, the idea is to, one, treat yourself and have something you really want, and two, to upregulate your leptin levels by giving your body, an, you know, a, a huge dose of something it hasn't had and kicking yourself out of starvation mode. So if you're talking about, like, a screw-up meal, which is like, you know, crap, I'm really, I'm craving this, and I don't care what it does to my diet, I'm going to eat it no matter what, in which case, what's better to have? I mean, you know, uh, I, I guess something that's just mostly sugary. Um, but, you know, at that point, you're, if you're, if you're basically, it sounds like you're asking, you're either asking the wrong question or you're asking the right question the wrong way. You're either asking... If I'm going to completely screw up my diet, what is less likely to do damage, then I would say, you know, sugar, but try to have some protein there. And if you're asking what is the better cheat meal to have to facilitate my fat loss uh, efforts via upregulation of leptin and other hormones, in which case it absolutely does not matter. So. Very good. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. And we appreciate the question, Susie. It really helps people. Um, you know, clarify and understand the whole system better. So that was a good question, great answer. Appreciate that. Now you want to talk briefly about all things in moderation. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of like the way that I do things, and uh, you know, what I really, really one of the things that I notice. I got a lot of questions about this. Um, you know, I'm kind of a slightly newer arrival in online fitness. You know, even though I've been writing for magazines since I was about 20, 
um, you know, getting involved with my website and everything has been recent. So I, I kind of wound up picking up a lot of your readers and a lot of Joel's readers and, um, and you know, and a lot of Geary's readers. And, and everyone has their different opinions. And, you know, Geary in particular has this kind of quest to, uh, to get people to stop eating artificial sweeteners. Um, and, you know, like, I, I don't want to say I disagree with them. I just want to say that, like, I don't, um, like, really? <laughs> like, that's, that's just, you know, when I get questions, it's like, oh, you know, like, I really like this protein powder, but, you know, it has aspartame in it. Is it okay to use? Like, I can't afford anything else. Like, well, if that's your only choice, why the hell are you asking that question? Like, it's fine. It's not going to be that big of a – it's not going to kill you. You know, it's like, is it likely – okay, I think we can all agree that artificial sweeteners are not good for you. But chances are they're absolutely not the worst thing in the world for you. And, and um, like, it's just one of those things that it's like, pisses me off. It's like, stop overthinking it. If, like, you're going to have your protein shake once every other day and the amount in there is roughly equivalent per serving to, you know, a packet of, of sweet low, like, honestly, are you really going to waste your time stressing about that? Like, is it really going to derail you? What's going to derail your efforts more? Not having the protein shake at all and not giving yourself a more convenient way to – you know, meet your protein requirements and, and your nutrition plan, or, you know, having exposure to 0. .005 grams of aspartame. So, you know, really all things in moderation is, is really serious. Just like, okay, if you can avoid it, like that's fine. Don't drink diet soda if you're having six cans a day. Don't drink soda at all if you can't not have six cans a day. But, like, if you're going to avoid eating food at a restaurant because, you know, it might have something that some fitness guru told you might not be good for you based on a couple of studies that you read which were kind of conducted correctly, then, like, you know, you're really just shooting yourself in the foot. You're not going to enjoy your life at all. You know, it's just like I, I put up a blog post. Um, you know, uh, you weren't at Ryan Lee's event, but, you know, I was there with, with Joel and, and Vince. And, you know, we went out and we had a couple of drinks, and they, they kind of got me drunk. Um but, you know, I wasn't going to, like, worry about that. It's like, okay, I don't drink – I honestly don't drink alcohol more than um, once every couple of months. But, you know, Joel, as you know, is a big connoisseur of beer. And, you know, on his cheat days, he likes to, you know, have a couple of beers. And he's, like, he's not worried about that. You know, it's like one of those things. If you're if you're doing it, uh, you know, semi-recreationally and you're, you're not, like, totally, you know, dedicated to it, it's not going to derail your efforts to the degree – that you really need to be questioning what one fitness guy says versus what another fitness guy says. It's just not that important. You know, I think we could all agree that we shouldn't be eating processed carbs, but that doesn't mean that on your cheat day you should avoid Fig Newtons. If you love Fig Newtons, just, like, just eat the damn thing. You know what I mean? It's just like one of those things people get too wrapped up in what we're saying, and they all they can see is the inconsistencies between what Geary says versus what you say or what I say versus what Joel or Vinny says. They don't have, like, the bigger picture. If you look, then, you know, we all agree on 90% of the crap, but they focus on, on the 10%, and they get all caught up, and they get into this paralysis by analysis, and they can't, you know, they don't know what to do, and then they just wind up not making progress. And it's really just like, don't worry about it. Everything in moderation. If you like having a cup of coffee every day with breakfast, you know, please do so. Enjoy it. It's not going to, like, unless you're trying to diet down to 2% body fat for a bodybuilding show, having a cup of coffee is not going to kill you. And it's not going to, like, screw up your fitness efforts that much. Just, you know, one of those things that people just need to get a little bit more okay with, um, you know, really just, like, accepting the fact that uh, they, they don't need to be perfect in every sense. And, and that's the main thing that I try to stress. You know, alcohol is very, very okay in moderation and, you know, um, you know, artificial sweeteners are not going to kill you in moderation. So just stuff like that. That's a big deal. That's good. And that actually kind of leads into the, the last main question I want to ask you, which is what is the mindset that your most successful clients have and what are the common characteristics of these success stories and what are the most important factors for people to overcome obstacles and blow past what, you know, they think they once thought was impossible? Um, 
the biggest thing that I see is they all get pissed off at where they are. The anger, like, that moment where they realize that, like, they absolutely have no right to be in the shape that they are, either because they're a young guy and it's, like, the point, the poor, you know, like where I was, and it was the point in my life where I wanted to be going out and hooking up with girls and having fun and, like, doing what all the other guys that I wanted to be like were doing, which is, you know, just like, oh, every time it's hot out, take your shirt off. You know, just like I wanted that, and I was so angry at myself for not getting there. And then I have parents who were angry because now their doctor is telling them they need to lose 30 pounds or they're not going to be around for their kids, and they get pissed off at themselves. So Chris Schubert actually wrote a great article about this that he calls Phoenix Theory, and you know, just like a phoenix kind of is consumed by its own fire and reborn from its ashes, that's the thing that I see most with my clients. They get just this blinding anger, and they're so pissed off at themselves for letting it get this far that that anger kind of consumes them, and they accept that it's going to be painful for eight weeks. And just willing, willingly submitting and embracing the discomfort of a changing lifestyle for eight weeks, like once you get past that eight-week point, it's fine, and everything is cruising, but it's just getting, you know, hitting bottom, I guess. Like, you know, it's like it's like what alcoholics call a moment of clarity, where it's that one moment that you realize, like, things just shouldn't have gotten this bad, and it's either, like, you know, fix them now, or it's probably going to kill you, or it's probably going to ruin whatever happiness you have in your life. Because, you know, you're, you only get one body, and you literally have to walk around with it all day long, so you may as well love it. And getting to the point where you, like, are so angry. My clients just get, you know, they all come to me and they're just like, crap, I cannot believe I let things get this far. You know, I have athletes who come to me and the guys who are most successful, the guys who had a really crappy off season and, uh, you know, they just like, they're completely out of shape. And then that first training session, you know, it's like they get embarrassed because everyone else is outperforming them. And then three weeks later, they're leading the pack because they're pissed off that they let it get that far. You know, the moms who are just like, now I'm out of shape. You know, I can't keep up with my kids. Um, you know, like, I can't, I feel weird when I go to the PTA meetings because I'm the heaviest woman there. And they get annoyed with themselves. They get really pissed off. They have this moment where everything just gets set on fire, and they literally are going to change it. Like, that, in that moment, they want, they come to that realization. That's all of my most successful clients, like, realize that. And then from that moment on, their life has changed forever. Very good. I really like that. And then someone else asked, where are your fat kid photos? <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a few of them. Um, I, I have one that I could probably put up on my blog. It's uh, I, I don't. It might have been like right before I um, I really got involved in fitness, and like I was, I might have been like seventeen or eighteen years old, and I was down in. Uh, I was down in Florida for something. So while I was there, my family and I went to like Disney World. And keep in mind, like, I wrestled and played football in, in high school, so I was always, like, a muscular kid. Even when I was a fat kid, I had a lot of muscle. So I'm, like, down in Disney World with, like, my sleeves rolled off because I had these big arms, not realizing that I was a fat ass. And, uh, you know, so, like, I, I take a picture with Minnie Mouse, and I look at this picture now, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I was so out of shape, but I didn't even realize it. But you can kind of see from my stance and everything that in that moment I was kind of okay with it. And, um... You know, every time I look at that picture, I'm just like, I'll never get there again. I'll never be like the fat guy with big arms or the or the chubby guy with big arms or, or you know, anyone who's less than lean. I was never going to be confident in one part of my body and hate every other part of my body. You know, it was, it was just never going to be like that for me again. So I do have a few of them. Uh, I'll see what I could throw up on my blog. There's there's a couple. They're pretty embarrassing. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Well, I think... Those sound very intriguing. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, they're, they're great. And then last question from, I think it was Chad, who wrote, one second, looking this one up. Chad wants to know where you got your swagger from. Uh, well, I'm from New York. We all swagger here. But you, but your specific John Romaniello. Uh, that is not that is not how you say that at all. It's <laughs> Romanello. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's how I remember how to spell it, though. Oh, okay. Romanello. Um, yeah. I think uh, I'm not. I, you know what? I'm sure I could come up with a lot of different answers in that, but most of them are going to be PG13 at 
at the at the absolute best, um, and not necessarily appropriate for. I don't know what the turbulence training crew is like. The, the they, guys that are always businesses. They tend not to want to go beyond. Yeah. Family. PG. So um, so you know what? That'll be something that you'll have to answer in person. Yeah. The next time Vince Delmani is getting you drunk at a fitness seminar. Oh, okay. But by the way, I just want to tell a quick story about Vince Delmani. This is how you know that John Romanello is the most stylish guy in fitness. Um, so I, I, I go to the Ryan Lee seminar, and, I, you know, I bring all my, my clothes and all my swag with me. And um, so one of, one of the styles that I, I certainly didn't start this particular trend, but it's just one of the ways that I dress. I wear kind of like, you know, combat boots, and I, and I tuck my jeans in. It's just something that we do in New York. And Vince had, like, never seen this before. And he was so blown away by the idea of this style that I had bought – I brought two pairs of boots with me, one black and one brown. So Vince, like, he's just like, I can't believe people wear that like that. That's kind of weird, man. I'm like, I don't know. This is how I do it. I've been doing it for years. So we're in the elevator going down to the event, and this chick looks at me. And she's like, damn, your boots are nice. I love when guys dress like that. Vince goes back upstairs, puts on the black boots, and then is walking around like that for three days, acting like he came up with this style. That's so, really strange. Yeah, he's a weird guy. So at the end of it, I was so you know I was so proud of him for taking this step to enhance his uh, his stylistic approach to life that I gifted him with these boots. So he, he's now got my black combat boots, and he's wearing them around Canada, starting trends. Uh, we'll see about that. All right, my friend. Uh, Wonderful information. We appreciate it. So everyone from Turbulence Training, thanks you, John Romanello. And, uh, hey, where can, uh, what's your blog again for people to check you out and, and get all, all right, the right. non-PG stuff? The non-PG stuff and, and all the other nonsense, uh, you can be found at www.romanfitnesssystems.com. Systems is plural. A lot of people screw that up. Or Wait, you can, can you just say that in me. Scottish? <laughs> Romanfitnesssystems.com. <laughs> Not your best work, but it'll do. Yeah, it'll do. So that's my Alan Cosgrove impression. All right, so we'll uh, we'll get together again sometime soon, probably before Joel's wedding back there in August. But again, we thank you, uh, John. Anything else you want to add before we sound off for this evening? Uh, no, I just want to say thank you to you as always, Craig. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and share some information with your readers and listeners. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in and checking it out. I hope I didn't offend anyone. All right, thanks, John. We will talk to you soon. Everyone, have a good night. And I am out of here.